You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, Nicoletta's friend, who likes to talk about fucking and is also a law student. This week, we are joined by Ari Tuckman, who's a PsyD and a CST. He's a psychologist and certified sex therapist who specializes in, get this, ADHD. His fourth book, ADHD After Dark, Better Sex Life, Better Relationship, was just published and is the first book to examine how ADHD has an impact on a couple's sexual and relationship satisfaction and how to improve both of those things. Welcome, Ari. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation here. I don't yeah. think we've had anybody talk about ADD. We briefly had Anna Cherry, like forever ago, talk about um, autism and sexuality, but I don't think we've ever included ADD in our conversation. Yeah, we don't really talk about like being neuroatypical, which is probably bad. So yeah, ADHD or ADD, they kind of, they're called the same thing. So like in the folks in that tribe would say that it is sort of not neurotypical, Um and they sort of speak about the neurotypicals as being the different people, um, maybe not quite as much as the folks in the autism community. But, you know, but here's the thing. You guys haven't really been talking about ADHD, but neither is anybody else in the world of sex. And nobody in the world of ADHD is talking about sex either. It's like there are these two silos and like ne'er the twain shall meet kind of thing, mm -hmm. which is why I wrote the book I did, why I'm doing the presenting I'm doing. And why, you know, my goal is I'm bringing ADHD to sex and sex to ADHD. So um, kind of an important part of adult life, you think, you know, sex, isn't that kind of an important part of relationships? Might <laughs> yes. that be a thing that as a society we might care about? Or is the divorce rate low enough that we can just like, you know, move on to our Netflix queue or something? So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing here. That's so Called out. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. So if like you, we draw the Venn diagram of like sex research and ADHD research, so you're in the middle. So what are the biggest kind of big picture findings and things that, you know, you think about and focus on? So, you know, I'm a clinician. Really what I do is I sit in my office and I meet with clients all day. And I've been specializing in ADHD, particularly adult ADHD, for a long time. And, you know, a lot of ADHD is about, like, practical stuff. So time management, staying organized, remembering what you need to do, you know, being able to find things when you need it. And that stuff is all definitely important, especially if you're, like, getting in trouble at work because you get there late too often and stuff like that. But more and more, I got into interested in kind of the relationship aspects of it. So how does ADHD, how does one partner's ADHD impact a couple's relationship? And there are some people in the world of ADHD doing really good work in that. So folks like Melissa Orlov and Gina Perra and Ned Hallowell, like there, you know, there's some good books out there on ADHD and relationships. There was nothing on ADHD and sex. And 
I wanted to write this book. And, you know, the research just wasn't there. So I kind of did my own research and looked at for these mixed couples, meaning one partner with ADHD and one without, how ADHD impacts their relationship, their sex life, and, you know, treatment effort and all of that. And you kind of wrap it all together and you get all sorts of interesting results that you can pull out of the mix. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, just about how we're not talking about it, but neither is anybody else. And as a clinician, like I had to get child hours before I got licensed. And so I worked with a lot of kids and it seemed like ADD was obviously like a huge hot topic for kids in school. Um, And it almost seemed like it was more for the, for the teachers and for the staff uh, to deal with kids who were like overly energetic or something like they would just throw this like ADD label onto them. But obviously, let's say those kids all did have ADD and they grow up, like why do the resources stop um, after childhood? Like why is ADD research so focused on children? Right. And that's exactly the thing. You know, if we're talking about kids, we're pretty well covered in the field in terms of identification and in terms of services. But when you get to adults with ADHD, there's a lot less out there. Um, and it used to be believed that actually ADD was a disorder of childhood. And the reason is that if you're hyperactive and not everybody with ADHD is, some people have that, what's called the inattentive type, never hyperactive. <clears throat> but even if you're bouncing off the walls as a kid, you're a lot less obviously hyper as an adult. So they just thought it went away. But what remains is the inattentive symptoms, which really become much more problematic. So things like, well, the stuff I mentioned, you know, trouble with time management, with forgetfulness, with getting things done, with meeting deadlines, um, you know, things of that sort, or other stuff like paying the bills or remembering to pick your kids up after soccer. You know, the world gets bigger and more complex and our actions carry more consequence as adults than they do as kids. And, you know, all those kids with ADHD eventually grow up to be adults with ADHD. And by the way, where do you think all those kids with ADHD came from? You know, like they came from their parents, obviously. And often you get what I call the two for one diagnosis, where a kid is diagnosed in school because, you know, teachers know what ADHD looks like. So they're really good at spotting it. And, you know, in the process of the diagnosis, one or the other of the parents says, oh, that kind of sounds familiar. I was the same way. Um, you know, so that's how a lot we're seeing more and more services, clinicians, you know, experience in treating adults with ADHD. Um, so it's gradually getting better. But, you know, for a long time, there was very little out there on ADHD and adults. Forget about ADHD and relationships and really forget about ADHD and sex. So, you know, the tide is turning. It's just kind of taken us a while. Uh, what do you think differentiates ADD from people who are just struggling with life and adulthood? Like you were listing off like trouble time managing or like forgetting this and forgetting that. And I feel like that's like every adult person <laughs> that I know who's like trying to navigate adulthood. So like what is the extent to which we would label it as ADD? And like what are some of the specific things that you really see in, in life and in relationships for someone struggling with adult ADHD? Sure. And, you know, okay, so that's a really good question because in some ways, yeah, like we all have our moments, you know, ADHD is not novel in the sense of like, people with ADHD don't have symptoms that nobody else has. 
they just have them much more often to a much greater degree. You know, they're part of that human bell curve of experience. So, um, <clears throat> just know, like we all have a little bit of anxiety. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the difference is that folks with ADHD have a clear and consistent pattern that spans their entire life and that cuts across most domains of life. So this year of school, but also that year, this job, but also that job, but also at home, for example. And, you know, there's a difference between, oh, I, you know, have trouble running late sometimes versus I'm getting written up at work for it or, you know, my pay is being docked or, you know, staying up till two in the morning to get a report done the night it's due at work or, you know, other things like, I don't know, forgetting to buy airfare and then having to spend twice as much money on it. So, you know, for example, adults with ADHD have lower credit scores relative to folks with the same income. Um, so folks with ADHD pay a much higher price for it in a much more kind of consistent kind of a way. It's not just sort of like a quirk of personality, um, but it really is a thing that, you know, almost by definition, to count towards ADHD, it has to be impairing. Like you got to be paying a price for it. I mean, it was interesting because what you said earlier about teachers being good at seeing the signs of it. I actually, I mean, I only worked in like one school setting, but I saw the opposite um, in that like they could tell that there was some kind of like attention deficit or hyperactivity happening. But usually what seemed to be actually going on for the kids that I was seeing was like internalized complex trauma. Yeah. And certainly that kind of stuff or other, I mean, there's lots of things that can look a bit like ADHD. So, so you're making a good point. And let me actually, so you're forcing me to clarify my statement, be a little more nuanced, which is good. So teachers are very good at knowing this is what a third grader looks like, you know, if they teach third grade, you know, like they've seen a hundred or a thousand, I don't know, third graders. So they know developmentally, this is what a third grader looks like. If you fall off of that curve one way or the other, they're going to notice it. Now, maybe it's ADHD, but I don't know, maybe it is complex trauma or maybe there's, you know, other things going on in this kid's life or maybe they're anxious or maybe they're depressed. But the patterns of where this kid is struggling are going to look a little bit different depending on what the cause is. So, um, so, you know, I think teachers are good at, they're a great first screen to kind of pick up what's going on with this kid. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them more than others. Um, I've had plenty of high school seniors come in who, you know, have been very clearly exhibiting symptoms of ADHD for 12 years, and yet it was never raised to the parents. Or it was, and the parents never did anything about it. I had 70-year-olds come in who, again, like we look back on their history, and it's very, very clear. And yet it was never mentioned. Although if you're 70, I forgive that because, you know, when you were a kid, certainly nobody was diagnosing it. Um, mm. But, you know, so, but it's this thing that once you see it through the lens of ADHD, if indeed that is what's going on, it really changes how the person sees himself and potentially how their partner sees them. You know, so it's very easy to personalize the, you know, stumbles of ADHD. You know, so like, mm. I don't know, just an easy classic example is, um, hey, honey, can you stop and get milk on the way home from work? 
sure, I'm all in favor of milk at home. And yet, here they go driving home, they forget to stop and they forget to get the milk. They're not passive aggressive. They're not, you know, vegan and against milk. They're not whatever. They're, they just forgot, you know. And the thing is, mm-hmm. even if they're the one who needs it in their cereal and the kids also and their spouse, so it's not like they're benefiting from it, you know. And that's kind of the thing is that they often shoot themselves in the foot. But it's easy for the partner to feel like, you know what, if you cared more about me, if you loved me more, if you weren't so selfish, then you would do these things that I asked of you. You know, I asked you to stop yeah. by the grocery store, or I asked you to load the dishwasher before you left, or I asked you to, you know, take the meat out of the freezer and put it in the fridge so we can, you know, cook it for dinner. So it's, it's that kind of death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. And if we're going to kind of bring it to the sexuality side, you know, generally speaking, people don't want to fuck people they're mad at. And generally speaking, people don't want to fuck people who are mad at them, you know, especially when it's like, oh, here we go again, Groundhog Day. So like that's the sort of death spiral potentially for these couples is that they keep getting tripped up in these little, you know, these small things. It's not like gigantic, you know, I had an affair and now you found out kind of stuff, although there Mm. is that. But it's that like little bit, little bit, little bit that just sort of, you know, rubs away the relationship. Wow. That that makes a lot of sense. I'm really curious. So you mentioned like, you don't want to fuck people that you're mad at or who are mad at you or someone who's mad at you. Does it manifest in other way? It's not just in terms of like, if you're engaging in sexual relationships, but like actual, like how sex and sexuality is affected by ADHD. So it does. And this was a finding that, you know, like I said, I did this survey and this is a finding that I haven't seen anywhere else. So I feel pretty confident saying that this was like the first place anybody picked up on this um, in any like official kind of research way. Um, What I found was that um, when I looked at the 72 questions that I asked in the survey, which is way too many questions, but I felt really actually psyched when I read Justin Laymiller's book. He asked like 350 questions or something. So I was like, oh, phew, thank God. Justin's crazier than me. So, um, yeah, especially if someone has ADD and they can't get through the 70 questions. So that's the thing, right? I, don't know I, did, if that's an online, true. I did an online survey with 72 questions with four people with short attention spans who are not getting paid. So you would think that I just killed myself there in terms of the research. And yet I got more than 3,000 people to fill it out. And at this point, it's actually like 4,000 people who filled it out. So what it says is there's a strong interest in the topic, despite the fact that I set myself up for trouble. So, um, but in those 72 questions, I pulled out about, I pulled out 12 questions that I felt, okay, these generally speaking, kind of like, they speak to a, in like sexual eagerness, as I call it. So things like, what is your desired sexual frequency with your partner? Um, what is your frequency of masturbation? How often do you look at porn? How do you feel about your porn use? How do you feel about your partner's porn use? Um, kinkiness, interest, and history of consensual non-monogamy, um, et cetera, et cetera. So like 12 questions that in some sort of a way spoke to this, you know, general theme of sexual eagerness. 
the folks with ADHD rated themselves, themselves higher on 10 out of 12. And the two that they didn't rate higher on, they tied. Um, and there were a couple of them that it was for one gender, but not the other. But even so, like 10 out of 12. So I think that what it indicates, which is not completely surprising if you understand the theory of some of this, is that folks with ADHD tend to feel their sexual interest more so than folks without ADHD, um, which I think is really interesting and potentially can be a real sort of benefit to the relationship, especially if you're talking like long-term relationships where sex sort of like, where passion and sex sort of like wane away, not with any real intent, they just sort of fade away because they are not as sort of front of mind for some people. Having someone who maintains that strong sexual interest and keeps it going over the years and decades, it's actually really important, you know, because couples that keep having a good sex life tend to benefit in lots of other ways and tend to be happy mm -hmm. in their relationship overall as well. So it can be a real plus if the couple is getting along well and continuing to have good sex together, but it can also be a real negative. If one person has a high drive and the other person has a low drive, that's going to potentially be a bit of an issue um, or a lot of an issue. Um, so let's say you have a couple come into your, your office that's kind of struggling with this dichotomy where the, the ADHD person has this more interest than the other one doesn't. I mean, granted, there may be other issues or contextual factors happening, but how do you help them navigate that difference? Right. And that, so that's the thing, right? And on the one hand, some of this is just sort of inherently, this person has a higher drive than the other one does. And that's normal human variation. Again, there's a bell curve on that. Um, and certainly desire discrepancies are really common. It's one of the most common reasons why people will come to a sex therapist. Um, yeah. But some of it is also, I think it's, it's a reflection on the relationship, potentially. And I'm going to steal a quote from one of my survey respondents who, you know, filled something in in the free response questions where she said, the parent-child dynamic is a real sex killer. And I've sort of like adopted that phrase of sex killer. And, you know, so the, the kind of stereotypical problematic dynamic is the non-ADHD partner who tends to be rather consistent and on top of things takes on more and more and more as the person with ADHD struggles to get things done or doesn't get them done in the way the non-ADHD partner would like them to. So as that imbalance grows, especially if it's a woman who has is the non-ADHD partner, it just it makes it increasingly imbalanced. And eventually the spouse begins to feel like it is another kid. And there's a lot of biology at play that makes most of us not feel sexual towards people that we feel parental about. Um, and vice versa. So, you know, that is a really problematic dynamic to fall into. So I think that, you know, there's also that aspect that it potentially suppresses one, one or both partner sex drives when the relationship has evolved to that point. Um, so. Yeah. Unless you're so, into like the daddy well, dom baby that's girl That's what thing. I'm thinking about yep. right now. It's like, I wonder if people with ADHD like gravitate towards that, like caregiver little kink dynamic. And it is a good question. On the one hand, I don't have the data to speak to it. On the other hand, I would not be surprised. 
you know, like I'm not going to bet my house on it, but you know, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. Certainly. Um, <laughs> it's a risk. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good guess. Um, I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's a joke in the field that those with attention deficit tend to marry those with attention excess. And, you know, there's a good complementarity there that the non ADHD partners either inherently or just within the context of the relationship become more and more sort of the one who's like on top of things. How do you take the parentified partner out of that role and still make sure that things, I guess, get done in the relationship? Um, I guess I'm thinking of an instance where, um, let's say the person who doesn't have ADHD is like, okay, I'm just not going to be the the parentified partner in this situation. But then they start building resentment because the other person like isn't doing what they say they're going to do. So then they feel like they have to keep being the parent. It sounds like a vicious cycle. And it is. And especially when ADHD has not been diagnosed and therefore is not being treated. That is a really mm-hmm. vicious circle. And there's a lot of those relationships that don't survive. Um, or they do, but like, well, you don't want to be in it, you know? So, so the way that you break that dynamic and help the, the partners be happier in general and also then you know, begin to add sex back in is that you sort of, you address it from both sides. And, you know, the obvious side is you get the partner with ADHD to basically like step up a little bit more, you know, so that might mean adding in some medication so that they're a bit more consistent. It might mean working with a therapist or a coach so that, again, they can kind of develop strategies and systems to be a bit more consistent that they do what they say they're going to do. Um, and that, so there's, that's the obvious side, the less obvious, but equally important side, because it always takes two to tango in a relationship is that the non ADHD partner needs to learn when to step back and to recognize that you can't have it done your way and also by somebody else. So, there are certain things that might be ADHD related and you want to address that. And then there's other stuff where it's just like, you know what? Two people who live together are not going to want all the same things at all the same time. So it becomes a matter mm. of kind of picking battles and letting some things go. And for the two partners to work better together, which means reminders perhaps should be given if one of you is better or remembering, but they need to be given nicely, which means you got to give the reminder before you're just like, Yes, but they also need to be taken nicely. Like you can't act like a dick when your spouse gives you a friendly reminder and then expect them to be happy about it. Um, but if you say, okay, I'll do it, then you damn well better write it down or set a reminder in your phone or whatever so that you actually do the thing that your partner is asking. So, you know, again, the partners are like each is coming from the extreme and coming towards the middle, that each has their part to play. And it's not just about managing ADHD better. Yeah. And I feel like this doesn't even necessarily have to remain in the realm of like romantic and sexual relationships. I can see how just interpersonal dynamics generally would would benefit from this sort of understanding. On that note, do you need some ideas for how to enhance your energetic experience? We think this new Audible Escape subscription discount will be perfect for you slutty scholars to enhance your knowledge. If you love love, you'll love Audible Escape. Audible Escape is a monthly subscription that provides unlimited listening to thousands of romance stories. Sometimes we all need to check out. 
and this subscription allows you to escape from the everyday with a steamy romance. Lose yourself in the most popular love stories of our times. Might I recommend a trip down memory lane with Pride and Prejudice, narrated by Rosamund Pike? You don't need to have an existing Audible membership to sign up for Audible Escape and can utilize unlimited listening to love stories for just $12.95 per month. Join the community and listen free for one month. Download the app to explore the love stories by visiting audible.com slash S&S to get started. Remember, the more you buy with our discount codes, the more we're able to sustain our show and keep making content. So to get started, just visit audible.com slash S&S. Again, that's www.audible.com slash S-A-N-D-S. We hope you enjoy. One thing that you mentioned before was like how treatment can support both the individual and the relationship. And I was wondering what that treatment consists of. Like, is it just medication? Like, you know, whatever Adderall, Ritalin, whatever people know about. Or is there like a therapy talk thing that can happen too? Or tasks? I don't know. Tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, treatment for ADHD often works best when it's sort of multimodal. And on the one hand, the medication that we have for ADHD really does work quite well. You know, most people tend to get a pretty decent response. If the side effects are problematic on one medication, you try another one and maybe it works better. Um, But, you know, there's also a saying, pills don't teach skills. And that's the rest of it, is helping the person with ADHD understand themselves a little bit better, understand how to get things done, how to be more consistent about the systems they use, which, by the way, works better when the right medication is on board. and. But also, not just from a practical standpoint, but also from like a kind of psychological mindset standpoint of understanding why they do what they do, how to, and then to see themselves in a little bit of a different way. So it's not like, why do I keep doing these dumb things? It must be dumb. But it's, you know, oh, I'm a smart person. And also, I tend to be forgetful in these ways. So therefore, now what can I do to make it better? So it's very much kind of taking a proactive kind of a cognitive behavioral approach to things. But it's also, you know, couples therapy between the partners so that, you know, again, the partner with ADHD steps up a bit more, but also to help the non-ADHD partner to learn how to let some things go, maybe, learn how to manage their anxiety in their own way and to not sort of create a situation where I will stop being anxious when my partner with ADHD gives me less to feel anxious about. You know, like if you pin your happiness on your partner finally doing something, like that's not a good setup for success. So, um, so some of it's individual therapy, some of it's couples therapy. A lot, you know, there's a lot of benefit, especially to kind of newbies to the diagnosis, to really kind of educate themselves, both partners, about what ADHD is so that they don't overread what it means. There's a bit less taking things personally, a bit less taking things defensively. I also do a lot of kind of pestering clients about the boring, like sleep, diet, and exercise stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Like, let's throw in mindfulness just because what the hell. Um, you know, just that basic stuff. It won't cure ADHD, but poorly managed ADHD makes that stuff harder, which tends to make you perform and feel worse also. So, So it really is kind of taking this on multiple fronts and helping the couple sort of work better together on it. 
I'm, I mean, I think this could be applied to lots of mental health things, whether it be anxiety or depression, um, or in, in this case, ADD. But what I'd be curious to hear from, from Ari and Simone, like, what do you think is the difference between acknowledging that there's a mental health thing going on versus um, somebody making excuses, I guess? Like when you were talking earlier about that partner who like forgets to get the milk, like what if they really are just like an absent partner and it doesn't have anything to do with attention? Like how do we, how do you differentiate it? Because I know obviously if someone said they're struggling with major depression, um, I would be understanding and at the same time, when is it time for someone to to take ownership and and do some of the work on that? Yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, it is very similar to these other things. And by the way, let's throw in physical, you know, situations as well. So, you know, someone who has MS or some other kind of disabling condition mm-hmm. or limiting condition. And let's also throw in life factors. So somebody has like, you know, an aging parent or some other kind of circumstance uh, or like a really long commute or whatever, you know, like if it, if it affects one person in a couple, it will affect the other as well. And, you know, I think that the, the big distinguisher here is who's working harder on this. And if your partner's working harder on your situation than you are, that is not a recipe for long-term happiness. So, you know, if the person with ADHD is really forgetful, let's say, then they need to not only be working harder than their partner is on their forgetfulness, but they need to make sure their partner sees that they're working harder. Because, and this kind of brings up what I think is the coolest finding out of the whole thing, uh, my whole 72-question survey. Um, So there's like a first sub-finding, and then there's like the big one. So the sub-finding was that when I asked people to rate their own effort at managing their ADHD or their partner's ADHD, and then to rate their partner's effort, most people tended to rate their own effort as being higher than their partner's. So that's not really that surprising because like, you know, I see everything I do. I don't see everything my wife does, so I don't give her credit for what I don't know about, you know, sorry, honey, that's just kind of the way it is, right? And vice versa, you know, like we, yeah, like all of us, we just know what we do, you know? So one little lesson there is you should probably round up your partner's effort at least a little bit because they're probably doing at least a little bit more than you think they are. But the big, really interesting finding here was that those people who rated their partner as putting in the most effort on ADHD had sex two-thirds more often than those who rated their partner as putting in the least effort. So they had sex 93 times a year versus 55. So basically like once a week to like almost twice a week. And I think what it reflects is that, you know, generosity tends to be rewarded with generosity. And if you're not being generous, if you're not carrying your weight, your partner will make sure you pay a price for it. At least if they have any sense mm. and integrity of their own, right? So, um, you know, so I think that the people who are good partners, who are generous, who are good team players tend to be noticed for it and they tend to be appreciated for it. And they tend to then get back more of that good effort from the other side. 
And it sounds like compassion too. Like if you're having more compassion that someone's doing their best and trying, um, that that feels better than thinking that their actions are personally attacking you. Right. And, you know, or at best, it's maybe not with the intent to attack you, but there's like a, a disregard for the effect it has on you. You know, like that's no good either. You know, like you could do this better, except you can't care enough to be bothered. You know, so like that has a really problematic effect on relationship happiness and certainly in terms of sexual generosity or even sexual interest at all. It seems like it really comes down to differentiation then, like separating your emotions and feelings from those of your partner and not being responsible for each other's feelings. Yeah, absolutely. It is all about differentiation. And this is, you know, this is a thing every couple needs to sort out. Like this is a universal that, you know, we all need to figure out how to get the best out of our relationship by giving our best, by knowing when to sort of stand strong and say, honey, this is too important. I can't let this go. Versus one of the times mm. where we say, you know what, in the grand scope of things, this is not a, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. You know, I'm going to let this one go. I appreciate everything else that's good about you. Um, but it's especially true for our, our couples with one ADHD partner that it really just highlights that universal struggle. And, you know, this sort of classic dynamic is the anxious non-ADHD spouse who needs their partner to be more on top of things so that they can finally relax, which is never going to happen. Um, and then the ADHD partner who needs their partner to just kind of chill the fuck out. But like, that's never going to happen either. So like, this is the no win scenario. The better place to get to is for each of them to recognize where is the situation that I need to step up and do my part. And where are the things that I need, I can ask my partner to do their part. And I think that. And what about for non, for non-monogamous partnerships? Yeah, even more so. Uh, I think it's even more so there because, you know, if your relationship is not in a good place and you add non-consensual non-monogamy as opposed to non-consensual non-monogamy, but, you know, it, it makes it that much easier to kind of seek your solutions in the other partner rather than to deal with them with your primary partner. And, you know, what I found was that my folks with ADHD in the survey more interested in consensual non-monogamy than their non-ADHD partners. And I understand sort of from a variety perspective, I can understand why that's tempting. Um, but, you know, like with any couple, you got to have your shit worked out at home before you start adding anybody else into the mix. So because of maybe that increased desire for diversity and novelty for ADHD folks, how does that relate to uh, porn watching habits? So those with ADHD watch more porn than those without. Um, and that was a pretty clear finding. They also felt better about their own porn watching, although, again, most people kind of feel pretty okay generally about their own. Um, but they also felt better about their partner's porn watching. Um, and, you know, in the, in the survey, there's lots of folks who are very happy in their relationship who actually feel like porn is adding to the quality of their sex life. And then there are people who are very unhappy in their sex life who are also watching a lot of porn. 
So, you know, there are some people who use porn as the cherry on top of something that's already good. And then there are those who use porn as a substitute for what they're not doing with it. So, you know, as, as well, I think all three of us know, and probably many of our listeners, porn is neither good nor bad. It's how you use it that makes it good or bad. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely agree. Um, yeah. And not even as a judgment of, like, good or bad, but clearly there's, like, some porn watching that causes distress in people's lives and some that, that doesn't, based on the, the context and, and the intention. Um, I'm thinking about the specifics, though, in terms of sex and ADHD. Actually, before we get to that, like, we've been throwing around, or I've been throwing around ADD and ADHD, and I know you said they're kind of synonymous. Um, when I was younger, I was always taught that there was a difference. So how do we differentiate in kids and adults the difference between ADD and adding the hyperactive ADHD? Right. So in the older versions of the diagnostic manual, it was called ADD. Then it got the name changed to ADHD, which is the official term now and has been for I don't know, a couple decades or a few decades at this point. But what's mm-hmm. confusing is there are some people with ADHD who have what's called the inattentive type, meaning no age, not hyperactive now, never were before. Um, so that's why you still see the two terms used pretty, pretty interchangeably. Um, so it's kind of a difference that that's not that big of a deal. How is hyperactive defined, though? So these are, again, mostly kids who tend to just, like, they don't sit still well. Um, So if they have to sit in class, it's really hard for them to do it. They tend to be the ones who are talking to their neighbor. They tend to be the ones who are calling out. Like, they raise their hand as they're yelling out the answer, um, impulsively interrupting people, you know, stuff like that. So those, you know, as... uh, Tom Brown, a big ADHD researcher guy, says everybody knows who the hyperactive kid is, you know, or the school janitor can diagnose the hyperactive kid. Um, once you become an adult, you're not like running around like a, like sort of Dennis the Menace or Calvin and Hobbes, um, but you're probably not. You may not take a you know fifty hour a week desk job. You might be in a job that allows you to be up and moving and doing some different things. So. You know, it becomes a little bit less obvious, but like as a kid, K to 12, you know, you don't have that option. You don't have the option of being a carpenter when you're in third grade. You know, like you got to sit still. You got to sit in class. You got to pay attention. Then you got to come home. You got to sit still and pay attention while you're doing other boring homework. So, you know, it just becomes more obvious there. Whereas, you know, someone who's working in a job that allows them to be moving around, they kind of blend in a little bit better. And that's even so interesting what you just said about, you know, you can't be a carpenter when you're in sixth grade. And I feel like the trouble perhaps with adult ADD or ADHD and really feeling like you're not smart or you're or you're not capable is that we so also associate like going to college or and getting degrees as like an as like an indicia of um, like success and competence and Mm-hmm. If that like that is not as accessible or as easy, obviously, um, for those folks, and so not even getting the opportunity to have a job where they actually would excel, right? I'm not just and throwing that, that out there. And that's definitely true. That you know, folks with ADHD are less likely to attend college. They're less likely to graduate if they do attend. 
But, you know, there's lots of ways to earn a living in this world that don't need a college degree. So I'm a big proponent of lots of other options um, in that college is great for the people it's great for. Um, and then right. for some people, they just need to slog their way through it. Like somehow or other, they just need to pass and get their piece of paper. And then they're on to better things. So, you know, I got plenty of my college students that I'm seeing as well. But, you know, for some of these folks, even 20 years later, there really is this kind of, you know, like this deep sense of shame about it. Like, why was that so fucking hard for me? You know, like, I'm so much smarter than that. And yet, you know, like, I barely made it through school. Or, you know, like, most of my friends just did four years of college and then out. You know, I did a year, failed out, came home and worked some shitty job. And then, you know, did night school and graduated eventually on my own, you know? And, mm-hmm. and there's this sense of like, you know, like they know there is something different about. Um, so, you know, there's that piece of it kind of psychologically that can be a real, like the bigger fallout of ADHD. And that but I see that as an issue with the, the school system. You know, I mean, that there's not individualized care and resources and approaches or that some people don't know how to get access to like disability resources. Like I myself have a processing delay and I know that, you know, once I got approved for taking tests in a separate room with extended time, um, that my grades reflected my, my intelligence or like what I actually knew. And so it's, you know, there is this hierarchy, like you're saying that, Oh, well, the student is just supposed to be able to sit still or supposed to be quiet or supposed to do this. But that being that maybe hyperactive person later in life can also have benefits. They're just not seen as positive traits in a kid in a large classroom when the teachers are like understaffed and under-resourced. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true. You know what? I mean, at this point in time, there are much better support services available for our kids compared to Mm -hmm. if someone who is 30 or 50, you know, like, if you're 50 today, there were not great resources when you were a kid. Um, but, you know, even so, like, the quality of these support services are rather unevenly distributed across the country. So it very much depends on not only your district, but the specific school that you're in. And, you know, we're not necessarily serving every student. If you're not in that kind of tall part of the bell curve in the middle there, you may not get the best education that you could. And yet, these are people who have lots of other you know, good qualities and skills and everything else. So, um, you know, so I think it's it's one of those things like, and this is just sort of like general all of us self-esteem, but I think especially relevant more for some people than others is this idea of I can feel good about who I am. I can value the strengths, and good qualities that I have. And yet, at the same time, I can also recognize the fact that there are some things that I'm just not good at and I probably never mm. will be, you know, and, and that's okay. I think that those of us who can feel good about ourselves, it's not because we're awesome at everything because nobody's awesome at everything, but it's being able to take that kind of grounded self-esteem that can acknowledge the places that you suck at things or acknowledge the times that you just sort of fuck it up and yet, you know, come back, deal with it with integrity. So like, you know what, honey, I know I was supposed to call the bank today. I totally forgot. That one's on me. Here I am setting a reminder in my phone, and I will definitely do it tomorrow. 
as opposed to getting into this kind of chase dynamic. Did you call the bank? Uh, yeah, they're supposed to call me back. I'll call them tomorrow, right? Which is clearly a lie. And then the lie gets found out. And then, you know, the non-ADHD partner freaks out even more, which is understandable, but not helpful, you know? And then it just becomes this kind of cover-up and this sort of lying, and this running battle where neither partner can have a whole lot of fun. So, you know. well, as we, as we start to, to wrap up, I, I would be remiss if I didn't pull a Simone and ask about the sex part of this. Yeah. So like, how does this impact, how does ADHD impact the quality of the sex? Like in, in so many of our episodes, we talk about how much better sex can be when it's really like mindful and in the present moment. Um, but if you're like easily distracted and looking for novelty, um, or having difficulty paying attention, how does that impact the quality of the sex? Right. And I think that's an awesome question. So I did find that folks with ADHD do tend to get a bit more distracted during sex than their non-ADHD partners, especially the women with ADHD. And also, generally, women more so than men had a harder time kind of mentally transitioning into sex, um, and especially, again, the women with ADHD. So, you know, it becomes this thing where on the one hand, if your goal is to have sex tonight, that could be a good motivator to really stay on top of everything so that enough gets done with enough good feelings left over that you actually want to have sex with each other and that, you know, there's enough time to actually do it. But also, whether or not either of you has ADHD, there comes a point where you just got to cut and run and say, you know what, we will get to that tomorrow or maybe we won't. But like right now, this is the time for us. And, you know, I think that the challenge here is for both partners to kind of feel that at the same time, or at least for one of them to be able to pull them into that and say, you know what, this is our time. And in some ways, a partner with ADHD, that can be a real strength for them because they tend to be a bit more in the moment, perhaps sometimes, you know, like who cares if the kitchen's a wreck? Let's do this. Um, but mm -hmm. also the person with ADHD can sort of drift off where like their partner is up in bed and they say, oh, well, just give me two minutes. I'll come right up. And then it's like an hour later and they never show up. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, it's so I think that, you know, what I found in the data was generally speaking, once these folks got around to having sex, it was actually pretty good. Like there weren't actually that many complaints about the sex itself once it happened. The trick was getting there so that there's enough time for it. There's enough good feelings for it. Um, but you know what? Sex can be a very meditative experience. Um, and, or it can be a very kind of a high intensity, high stim experience if that's what you're looking for. Um, so I think the trick of it is, is to, you know, figure out how to get what you want. And that might mean that you have sex a bunch of different ways depending on what each partner is looking for. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been, uh, this has been very helpful for me personally, I think. And, and even if people aren't struggling with ADHD, I think it's, I don't know, there's some helpful tools in this, but I'm so glad that there's someone out there doing this work and that we were able to, to include this. And it's yeah. just a reminder that there's always like ongoing, whether it's physical or neuroatypical things happening, um, I don't know. There's always more to, to explore. Um, for our listeners who this is resonating with, do you have any advice for, for just first steps to, um, 
you know, where can they go? Where can they start tackling this? And how can they find you? Yeah. So, you know, if you suspect ADHD is part of the mix, and if you have a genetic family member who has ADHD, that alone is a bit of a tip off. You might want to get a little bit of a look at it. But if you think there's some ADHD in the mix, talk to someone who, who can tell you whether there is. And if so, really educate yourself, both partners or whatever number of partners, about it so that you can really understand what it is so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of good strategies to deal with it. And then in general, to just keep this, like, the goal is that you're on the same team and that it's a good team to be, that you're working well together. Um, the big ADHD advocacy organization is CHAD, C-H-A-D-D dot org. That's like, I think, a great first place to learn a lot about ADHD. And then my website is adultadhdbook.com. Amazing. This was very illuminating. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. And I really do think, I mean, you know, you said this yourself, but I do think that you know, a lot of what we're talking about, it does apply to most couples out there. It just has a little bit extra when one of the partners has ADHD. So hopefully yeah, those definitely. who specifically have ADHD got a lot out of this as well. Thank you so much. And again, listeners, if you want to follow what we're doing, you can find us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. And if you want to support what we are doing, remember, you can give us your money at patreon.com <laughs> slash Sluts and Scholars. Uh, but we know that not everyone has that privilege. So if you can't afford that kind of support, um, leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts is always helpful. Uh, so but Ari, helpful. thank you so much for joining us. And Please reach out if you've had this experience uh, with ADHD and tell us about how it's impacted your relationship at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thank you.